2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 is our text today. And I want to challenge you with this. I, I hope that you'll take away from this some, some real action steps. Now, that's true every week. But as you think through what the Scripture teaches us today, I, I hope it'll, it'll rattle your cage just a little bit. It'll cause you to reevaluate a little bit of how you handle disagreements or engagements regarding Scripture, but that it'll equip you. And there'll be something different about us as we leave here that we will find ourselves in this category, approved workers. You know, the center of this text we're going to look at in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is this challenge to be approved workers. There have been several analogies or metaphors already about what it means to be a Christian faithful in the service of the king up to this point. You know, we've seen the analogy of an athlete who competes or a farmer who works hard or a soldier who serves bravely. And now just this sort of general statement of, of a worker that God approves of, which by just its implicit nature means that we can be a worker that's unapproved, disapproved of by God. How we do this matters. How God works through us is really dependent on how we rightly handle the text in front of us, and every text in his word. So my prayer is that we would be approved workers. So let me read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Remind them of these things. Now let me make a hard pause there for a moment, because that is obviously a transitional statement to what the reminder is. And the reminder is these verses that we saw just last week that are an overarching statement of the beauty of our faith, the value of our faith, and why you and I should endure in it, stay firm in it to the very end. If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. That's a promise. If we've surrendered our pursuits in this life, if we've given up our old life of sin, which only leads to death, to die to sin is to live in Christ. We will live with him. And not just a better life, not just a more satisfying life, a life of fulfillment. Yes, that's all part of it, but that's only a small part of it. It's the everlasting life of living with him. If we died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. That's just the constant reminder in every generation of believers. Hold fast to the end. Don't simply begin. Finish. Finish. The rewards are found at the finish line. Finish. Endure. And we endure together, not just independently. When you come to worship with us on a Sunday morning, it's not just that you could sit there and be personally equipped to live this Christian life so that you can finish well one day. It's that you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're going to do everything that we can by the power of God's Spirit, using the Word that He's given us, to make sure that we help each other endure. So that means that sometimes if you're struggling with sin, you might be corrected or challenged here. There might be a brother or sister who chastises you or says, man, you can't live like that and be a follower of Christ. It may also mean that when you have fallen and that you're repentant, that someone says, man, let's get up and go. Accept the grace of God. Receive it. Receive the forgiveness of God. Forgive yourself. We forgive you. Let's move on. Let's move forward. Let's finish together. It also means when there are collective challenges to our faith that you should never feel like you're out there alone. Whether that's something you're struggling with in your own faith life or you're, you're doubting or maybe just the pains and, and difficulties are starting to to add up and you're beginning to feel weaker, weaker, you should never feel like you're alone out there. You've got brothers and sisters that are with you, that we finish together, we endure. But if we deny him, he'll deny us. But we will not. Our commitment to the Lord, our commitment to each other is that we will not, we'll be faithful. Why? Because he is. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. It's good to know that we are held not by our own strength, which ebbs and flows, but we are held by the 
by the strength of Christ, which is infinite. And we belong to him. We are in his grip. So Paul told Timothy, you remind people of these things. Remind them of what's critical, what's most important. But understand, as you're teaching the truth, as you're reminding them of these great truths of our salvation, there are going to be challenges. There's going to be opposition. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. All right, let's talk about what's going on in this text. And I summarize this in this way. In this text, there's a charge because Paul tells Timothy, you charge them before God. That's a very serious way of saying this isn't just a personal preference issue. This isn't just something that's beneficial and helpful. This won't make just for a healthier congregation, though that's true. This is something that God cares about, and he cares about very strongly. Charge them before God not to do this. Let's talk about what that charge is. And then a challenge to each of us personally. Now, Timothy obviously was an elder in the church, a pastor, teaching elder in his church. He has a responsibility, but every Christian has this responsibility. What is that challenge? And then a specific case study that he references which you might have to find in the study notes or the concordance or the margin notes of your Bible to see what he's talking about. So let's talk about this charge and challenge and case study. Well, the context is pretty apparent. The challenge in the first century church is not different than the challenge in the 21st century church. Wherever the truth of God is preached, taught, believed, and lived by, it will be attacked, opposed, challenged, twisted, distorted. And that's exactly what was happening there, and it still happens in our day. The challenge of false teaching. And so this challenge about arguing, etc., is all around this. And among them, he says, are two names, Hymenaeus and Philetus. This is just an aside to the text, but it ought to be a little bit interesting to you to note that when it comes to false teachers in the early church, guess what? They named names. They named names. I can remember we were doing a series here, this is years ago now, maybe eight, nine years ago, and by, these aren't repeated messages, so don't worry, but I was teaching through First and Second Timothy on a Wednesday night and how it related to the life of the church, the, the activities of the church. And at one point, I sort of ventured out there a little bit, and I began to name some names of false teachers because, I mean, Paul is hitting Timothy with this over and over and over. Timothy, your role as a shepherding teacher is not just to give the truth, but to guard the truth and to say when something or someone is intruding on it or opposing it or outside of it. And so when I began to name them, I was really honestly surprised at the number of people that it offended that I would actually name people by name that were false teachers. Now, now you're on the edge of your seat. Say, hey, throw me some, throw me a ball, name me a name. Now listen, I wasn't, I wasn't hitting the fruit that was way up on the tree. I was hitting the ones I thought was already on the ground that was obvious to everybody. I mean, I wasn't saying anything radical here. And being to name names, but listen, that is actually biblical. The people in the church need to understand these people 
are teaching things that aren't true. They're contrary to the Bible. So what do you do with those particular people? You avoid them. You mark them by name, and you avoid them. And not only does he give names, he gives exactly what their false teaching was. He names it. These people are false teachers, and here's why. They're teaching falsely. Now, this may sound a bit like a commercial break, and it is, but listen to our podcast this week. We're going to be talking about the nature of heresy. What is heresy? None of us get it all right all the time, so we're not talking about theological or doctrinal perfection, but there are certain teachings that deny the very gospel, and that sort of teaching you mark and you avoid. You look at those teachers in those ministries, and you say, no, no. As a Christian, I can't stay away from them. And so we know these names already. Hymenaeus was already denounced in a previous letter in 1 Timothy. Paul had already challenged the church to put him out. In fact, what they did with unrepentant Hymenaeus is, according to the Scriptures, they turned him over to Satan. Said, you deal with him. He belongs, he belongs to you. He said, turn them over to Satan. He listed two people in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander. We don't know what happened to Alexander exactly but apparently now Philetus has taken his role and Hymenaeus though he's outside of the church he's been put out of the church for his false teaching he's still circulating out there my guess would be he's still having little home bible studies he's probably got a blog and he's probably sending out a weekly email to his followers and still stirring up false teaching my guess would be he also has a music label and he's producing a lot of music that's probably listening in top 40 Jerusalem radio and the people are digging it but he's a false teacher. And he says, so mark them. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he says this to them. This is the challenging part for us for a moment. And we really got to dig in to make sense of this. He said, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. How many of you in this room love to argue? Raise your hand. I know some of you who you are. You're just not raising your hand. This was your opportunity to confess and leave here a better person. What sort of quarreling is he talking about here? What sort of quarreling is he, is he talking about here? Quarreling about words. Does this sort of quarreling mean that we can't ever debate anything? Does this mean that I can't, I can't spend the first 10 minutes of my life group time arguing who should be the starting quarterback at Auburn? I can't do that. I'm not allowed to do that. This means I can't talk about politics or current affairs. No, he's talking about in the context of the church and those things which affect the gospel, fruitless arguments are not benign. Kicking around philosophies and ideas and just self-generated concepts and the latest fads, that's not a benign activity. Over time, that proves to be destructive. Again, Paul has addressed this to Timothy already. In the first letter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, speaking of false teachers, he calls them puffed up with conceit, understanding nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for, same phrase, quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Those people who like to quarrel about words are showing you something about themselves. There's a brokenness in their thinking and they they're deprived of the truth. He addresses it in another pastoral letter, Titus chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. As for a person who stirs up division 
after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. So this quarreling about words, which I'm going to delve into in just a moment, if you're in a position like Timothy was in, who has a position of authority and leadership in the church, then your responsibility as one in authority is to not allow it. Don't allow that to be part of it, Timothy. Don't allow that to happen. Charge them before God not to do that. That's not healthy, beneficial, God-honoring behavior. But if you're not one in authority, if you can't put a stop to it, you're sitting in that small group or you're in that congregation and this is all people do and they argue about things that don't matter and they squabble about words and things, then your responsibility at the very least is don't engage in it. Don't be party to that. Now again, what are we talking about? He says a quarrel about words. There is a particular word that's in view here. It's more of an example. It's not the only possibility of how we could do wrong by this command, but it's certainly how at least they were doing wrong by it. Because he says of of Philetus and Hymenaeus, what were they saying? You've got these two false teachers, and their claim was about the resurrection. The word in view in this particular example is the resurrection. And what did they say about the resurrection? It's already happened. So what were they talking about? What were they talking about? Obviously, the final resurrection hasn't happened because, well, we're still here walking around and having conversations, and the dead people are still in their graves, so it's not that one. Now, obviously, Jesus' resurrection has already happened, but that's not what they're talking about because they're aiming this at the church, and they're saying the resurrection's already happened. Our our best guess, okay, so take that statement for what it's worth. Our best guess is this. They're arguing some sort of embryonic version of Gnosticism. What they're saying is this, the resurrection is not a literal thing. Don't be expecting that one day, literally, you're going to die and you're going to have a new body and be raised to new life. That's not what resurrection is. Resurrection is a spiritual concept. It's the spiritual new life that you're going to have or this spiritual union that you're going to have with God. And so what they were saying is, you're as resurrected as you're ever going to be if, you have, if you're a follower of Christ, you have this resurrected new spirit life. Jesus' resurrection may have been to them just spiritual. We don't know. But it's a false teaching. It's an old heresy that the resurrection is not literal, that it's not physical, that it's not actual for us. But they're teaching this false idea. And here's what they're saying to them. Don't engage in argument about words. So imagine in their small group after the Sunday morning message and Timothy gives a sermon. And he talks about the resurrection that day. Timothy gives a sermon about the promised resurrection of the dead for all who believe in Christ one day. And then the people sit around the room and say, you know, resurrection can mean a lot of different things. You know, resurrection can be, you know, I'm living better than I used to. Or I'm sober now. Or I've turned over a new leaf. Or I've restarted things. Or I've got a a new family now. Or resurrection can mean lots of different things. He says, don't argue over words but what should I argue I should argue the word I should argue the word my debate is not philosophy if I'm a Christian and I'm defending the critical things about the gospel I'm not trying to engage you on a human level with human philosophy human opinion man-centered thinking in fact I'm moving well towards this understanding which is point number two My service to the king, to represent him well, 
To be a worker in the king's army, part of the king's family, to serve the king well means I'm going to rightly handle his word. Now stick with me and I'm going to show you what I mean and how these two things connect. If we're not careful in our discussions and debates, both with the person who's offering up some new but old heresy, or some person with a secular argument, or some person who's brand new and just doesn't understand what the Bible teaches, they've not been exposed to it or read it or understood it, our temptation is going to be, let's put the scriptures aside for a minute, and let's just discuss and debate. Or, even worse than that, let's reduce the scriptures to the level of human wisdom. And what what Paul is telling Timothy is this, Timothy, don't waste your time arguing and debating on that level. Use the Word of God. And don't forget this, and this is a statement I put in your notes so that you wouldn't forget it. Don't forget that the Word of God is not just words. Don't think that God's Word is just words. What am I saying here? If we're not careful, we subconsciously will have a theology of Scripture that diminishes Scripture. God's Word is the Word of God to us. The Word of God is God's Word to us. In it, God has spoken. In it, God still speaks. The Bible says of itself, its own self-attestation is this, that it's sharp and that it's powerful and that it's effective in accomplishing the purposes of God for which he designed it. So when you think of the Word of God, when you're engaging in that debate, someone might say, listen, I I don't care what the Bible says. Or can we just put the Bible aside for a minute and just talk here? As a Christian, particularly as one who exerts leadership or influence, never do that. Even if what you're saying from Scripture seems as foolishness to them, because this is God speaking through his word and as one who would influence the thinking of new believers disciple believers challenge the false teaching of some believers or false professors or even engage those who are secular minded trust that God's word works supernaturally through the power of God's spirit to accomplish God's purposes never think that the word of God is just words so how does that change how we teach How does that change how we debate? How does that change how we argue? We give the Word of God with confidence, believing that in ways we can't see or imagine, God brings about life through His Word. He changes hearts. He changes thinking. He corrects sin. He encourages faith. He erases doubts. All these things are happening through the right handling of His Word. So how do we handle His Word well? Well, there are some words here that I put in your notes, just some thoughts. And as I was revisiting this, I just kept adding more and more descriptive terms to how we handle his word well. Remember in this challenge, he told Timothy, he says, be one who's approved, which means there are some approved and some disapproved. And then he also says, handle the word, catch this phrase, approved workers are not ashamed. Handle it in a way that you will not be ashamed. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm going to be engaged in some conversation or debate at some point and I'm not going to remember exactly what it says or its reference point I'm going to be embarrassed in that moment no much worse it means that I'll stand before God one day and as one who is his ambassador 
called to be an ambassador of Christ, representing him in this world, the voice that God will be using to call people to himself, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, that I will not get it right, that I will say something the Bible doesn't say. Doesn't <laughs> yeah, my daughter will be listening to that. I'll get a text on that one in a little while. That I'll say something the Bible doesn't say, or I'll make the Bible say something that I want it to that's not true. And I'll be ashamed before the Lord that I so mishandled the sword of truth. So, diligence. Listen, as a Christian, it's incumbent on every one of us. Listen, when we say spiritual disciplines build health in you, we're not throwing that out there as just something that we think might be a benefit to you somewhere down the road. As a Christian, to handle the Word is most necessary for you. And I don't know an appropriate analogy for this, except that the Scripture uses a description of itself as a two-sided sword. And for those of you who have ever cut yourself deeply using a sharp knife that you weren't very adept at handling, you might at least understand that analogy on this level. If I don't handle the Word of God correctly, it can be a pretty dangerous thing to me and to those people around me. Handle it correctly with diligence, with, with skill. I'm going to come back to that skill point in just a minute. And use it with courage. Use it with courage. Don't be afraid of addressing sin in the life of a friend or a family member or addressing the failures of our culture by saying what God's Word says. Now listen, I get it. I know what sort of reaction and response that will often receive. I know how people are recalling against that more and more and more, but that does not change. Just because people don't like us to use the Scriptures, do not, that does not mean for us that that's not the primary instrument of God to accomplish His purposes in this world. So use it with courage. But as you use it with courage, make sure that you have the humility and the teachability that you learn to handle it correctly. So if I were giving you a quick lesson today, which... I won't go too much in depth. This is for another study time and another time together. You have to understand some basics when handling God's Word. Things like context. That's why we're always referencing how this fits in its wider body. That's why we try to be very careful in our preaching and teaching that we don't just wrench phrases out and then make them say what we want. Because that's one of the ways you can quarrel about words. You can take it out and say, well, the Scripture says this. But that's not clearly what it's about in that context. Or, or number two, that's clearly not the author's intent because that doesn't speak to the wider picture of what's written in that letter. Or number three, it doesn't fit with the entire body of Scripture. And we know Scripture interprets Scripture, so if I find something that seems weird or strange or that can't be, my best way of understanding is comparing it to the rest of Scripture. But rightly handling the word of truth. So understanding, we're not talking about no arguments, no debates, no conversation. There are things worth arguing Truth is worth arguing. That's worth debating. Morality is worth arguing and debating. Getting God's word right is worth it in a godly way. But we have to handle his word rightly, remembering that it's not just words. Why? I don't know why this is, but it seems to be pretty true from both what this scripture teaches us and implies and what we see in our own experience. Tell me if this is not true. Ungodly words from ungodly people spread quickly, corrupt widely, and whether they realize it or not, which probably they don't, they ultimately will bring God's judgment. I guess I say all that to say it's amazing how fast bad teaching and heresy can spread, 
and it's amazing how popular it is. We have those conversations sometimes where we're just kicking things around in our staff, and we were talking just this past week. Why is it that some of these false teachers have such large followings? I mean, even after they've been exposed, even after many people have exposed that no one is really getting healed at one of these Benny Hinn crusades, even though they continue to claim such, even when Stephen Furtick can go on one of his preaching rants, one of his preaching performances, and you can clearly say that's not what the Bible says, that's not in the clear line of teaching, that's not even the gospel, and yet thousands will listen. Or just the simplistic, insipid, self-help, Christian fortune cookie teachings of Joel Osteen, and yet thousands of people will retweet something that he posts that's patently unbiblical. Why is that? Because of this truth, corrupt words spread, what's the word that Paul used with Timothy? Like gangrene. When you've got a patient who's already unhealthy, how much more vulnerable are they to virus, to bacteria, to sickness? You know, a a healthy patient can shrug some of those things off, and, and their body's natural defense system can handle it, but when you're already sick spiritually, and more sickness is introduced, how quickly does it spread? Now, here's what he said about those teachers. He said, this is what they've done. This is the picture he was given. If this is the truth, and it's a straight line, these guys have swerved all away from it. Now, what's common with so much false teaching and false teachers is they'll start with something that sounds like the truth, or it was close to the truth, or some sort of derivative of the truth, but they've swerved away from where that truth would take them. How do we live out according to this truth? Or what does that truth really mean? So they begin to teach, as we might say, they're just all over the map. He says, but as for you, literally, he's challenging Timothy, you cut straight. You cut straight. Don't swerve. Don't swerve when you know people aren't going to want to hear that, so you swerve. Or people aren't going to want to come to listen to you on a Sunday, Timothy, you're teaching that stuff, so you swerve. When the culture that you're in in Ephesus here, they're not really ready for that. You know, they're really, really very pagan, so you swerve. The idea of cutting straight would be a term that would say, you know, if there's a, if there's a mountain in front of you, cut through it. Keep going straight. If there's a river, go over it. Whatever it is, keep plowing the straight line of truth, and whatever the cost, cut straight. And he uses this idea of progression. It's almost a play in words. A play on words. Listen to how he describes those who are receiving the false teaching. He says, you know, this irreverent babble, verse 16, it's leading people into more and more ungodliness. Some translations say, use the word progressing. There's a spiritual truth in that text, embedded in that text. We're all progressing. The question is just which direction? Are we progressing towards truth and godliness? Are we progressing away from it? We're moving. We're not spiritually static. Even this moment, right now, you're either growing or or withering. And so one of the values of sitting under preaching and teaching and truth and sitting in a small group and reading the Bible for yourself and using good resources that are available to you because they're progressing. We're always progressing. He says, this is exactly what they're doing. Which way? So why are these false teachings and heresies so popular? They sound a little bit like truth, but they end up somewhere else. Almost all false teaching and heresy has this as a commonality. It says something that people want to hear. 
You know, later Paul will warn Timothy, he says, you know, in the last days, people are going to gather for themselves teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. We use that terminology today. You know, people that will scratch where we itch. So much false teaching is rooted in this. What do people like? What do people want? What validates, authenticates what people already believe, where people already are, and affirms what people are already doing? And that's not just true of people out there, those others, you know, the, the, the bad ones out there, as we tend to think of us. That's true of us in here. We run up against that all the time in conversations about what the Bible says. So many Christians, I won't say a majority or most or anything like that, but too many simply want someone to teach them things they have already decided they believe, affirm opinions they already hold, and validate decisions they've already made. And all of us have to approach Scripture with humility saying, does this correct me? Does this change my way of understanding that? Does this speak to what I should believe but don't, what I should do but I'm not doing, or what I am doing but what I shouldn't? All of us come to that where we surrender to it. So how should we address false teachers and teachings based on what we see in this? Identify the false teaching. Identify the false teaching. Now again, we don't have time to go into this in detail, so this is worth our conversation later, but we have to triage these things. There's false teaching that's level one. I'm talking this threatens the very gospel itself. To listen to that, hear that, believe that, that jeopardizes salvation. If not for you, then certainly for other people who might never understand who Jesus is. Tier one things, those are non-negotiables, fists closed, we won't let go of this, we won't change our mind on this, that's absolute essential. There are tier two things. These two things may, may not threaten the gospel, typically don't, should not threaten the gospel. We ought to be identified with other people and, and affirm that they're Christians too, but we have some fundamental disagreements that would affect where we go to church, for instance, because we don't embrace this or because we do embrace that. Some of those things are practices that other groups or other denominations might hold that are critical to them. But we say, yes, you can still be a believer, but you know, when it comes to our close fellowship together, we believe those things matter. Then there are tier three things. And tier three things are things that just even in this room, there's certainly biblical room for us to disagree on. There are good and godly people that have not come to a consensus on those. I'm going to hit some of those head on in, in the in the early spring, when we get into the Gospel of Matthew, we start talking about Jesus and the Olivet Discourse and future tense, eschatology and prophecy. We won't all see it the same. And we can debate those things among us in a healthy way, in a God-honoring way. That's not just quarreling about words. It's looking at the text and sharpening each other with what the text says. And those disagreements can exist among us. But when it comes to this false teaching, things like the birth of Christ virginity of Mary and the perfect birth of Christ, his sinless life, for instance, his bodily resurrection, his sacrificial death, his physical return. These things are non-negotiable things, and that's why he challenges them. Name the false teaching and identify the false teacher and avoid them. The case study, which we'll look at more tonight, so I won't deal with too much this morning, is actually from Numbers. I don't remember the, the last time I used Numbers as a devotional book, in the Old Testament, but for those of you who have read through the Bible this year and you worked your way through Numbers, felt like you were kind of walking uphill, as it were, um, for a long time reading through Numbers, here Paul quotes it. He quotes Numbers chapter 16. Those two quoted uh, portions of the text were Numbers 16. 
And it deals with a great rebellion that just had a resounding impact in the life story of Israel. If you don't remember the name, I'll introduce him to you tonight, Korah and his rebellion against Moses, which really was rebellion against God. And it was a reminder in that text, just as a reminder in this text, that truth is never a popularity contest. Let me just throw that out there, just sort of as a free-floating statement this morning. When you look at thousands going after false teachings and false teachers, there might be a part of your logical self that says, if so many people believe it, maybe it's right. I mean, if there's so many people embracing that, then maybe there's something to it. Well, you wouldn't be the first to think that way. They were doing that back in Moses' day when Korah led thousands away in rebellion against God. Hmm, there must be something to it. These are, these are good people. I know that guy. He's a leader. He's a teacher. He's a this. He's a that. He's got a big ministry, big platform, big whatever. Remember that truth is never a popularity contest. And also, truth or lies either way, are never determined by the teacher. So be careful in your assessment of what's right and good as you labor to be a healthy worker of the Word, an approved worker of the Word. Don't take the shortcut of saying, well, so-and-so believes it. So-and-so teaches it. Because so-and-so could be wrong. But truth is truth, regardless of who speaks it. And wrong is wrong, regardless of who speaks it. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Galatians about the gospel and the truth. He laid it down with, with such emphasis, with such absoluteness. He said, even if angels from heaven should come and preach you a different gospel, let them be anathema. Let them be condemned. I mean, if you had angels show up and tell you something different, <laughs> reject it. Know that they are condemned. That's anathema. That's untouchable. That's the grossest kind of sin. So, if you have an angel named Moroni who shows up and gives you gold tablets, and those tablets are different than the gospel, even if an angel shows up and gives you something different, know that they're condemned. That's how firm we are on the truth of the gospel. And then he makes this statement, which we'll explore tonight in a little more detail. God always knows those who are his. God knows those who are his. God knows in the hearts. He knows who are his. I don't conclude with this. Because the focus of this challenge, this part of this text, is words. Don't underestimate the power of words, particularly when they're God's word. Timothy, that's your primary, that's your primary occupation as an elder, as a pastor, is the word of God. That's what you teach with, that's what you shepherd with, that's what you lead with, that's what you protect with. As a Christian, that's also your primary tool, so that you don't sit under false teaching, so you don't give way to charismatic false teachers. When I say charismatic, I'm not talking about Pentecostal in that sense. I'm talking about charismatic in the sense that these people are very convincing. And they're great communicators and they're very attractive personally. And man, I like that guy or I like her, or that teacher. And she's just, I mean, I love the stories and she just, you know, they hit my heart. That sort of charismatic that just draws me in emotionally. You have to rightly handle the word. And when you're having those conversations, so you know how to answer falsehood with truth. So you can stand on the Lord and so that you're not pulled off of that pedestal of truth. So that you don't lose your footing on firm ground. So that you know it's what's incumbent on all of us. But in this context of teaching about words, he's also making a point that we need to know. Our words do reveal something. You know, it's popular for us to have this sort of mantra that we repeat that, you know, only God can judge me. You don't know me. 
God knows my heart. Maybe you get challenged on something you say, something you claim to believe, whatever. We just have this, this kind of overarching statement. You know, only God can judge me. God knows my heart. And that's true. Ultimately, God alone does judge. And, and only God does know the contents of our hearts. That, that, that's true in as far as it goes. But what we can know and judge, and what we must judge, because the Bible doesn't simply give us one trump statement, don't judge ever. We're told not to judge those who are sinful in the same ways that we are without judging ourselves first. But we're also commanded, that's the negative in judging, don't judge without self-judgment first. You know, as Jesus says, don't go to take the beam out of someone else's, I mean, don't go to take the speck out of someone else's eye when you have a beam in your own eye. But the positive aspect of judgment is to judge rightly. You have to judge rightly. You have to assess. That's right. That's wrong. That's true. That's false. That's good. That's bad. We can know and judge the words of men. And we're responsible to do that. So while we can rightly say, yeah, God, only God knows the hearts. And so, you know, people ask all the time regarding this false teacher or that false teacher, do you think they're doing this intentionally? I mean, do you think they know full well that what they're saying is not true and they're doing it just to mislead and they know it? In some cases, I would say, yeah, I, I think they probably do. And I have to be careful of that because, again, I don't know what's in their hearts. I don't minimize the potential for anyone to be so self-deceived, so self-deluded, they may, may actually believe some of the lies that they tell. In some cases, they're so preposterous that I don't think anybody could really believe that. And I think they're guilty of the ages old sin from the very beginning of the church of profiting off of people under the name or guise of Christ. At the same time, I don't know the hearts, but here's what I can know. I can know the words, and I can judge the rightness, the trueness, the accuracy of the words. And at the same time, remember, the words of men do reveal the hearts of men. Because out of the overflow or the abundance of the heart, the mouth does speak. So Paul is telling Timothy and the gathered body of Christians at Ephesus, you've got two men here. And they're apostate. And I'm not suggesting that you know all their motives and all their hearts, but you do know what they're teaching you. And what they're teaching you is a gospel-defying heresy. So assume from what they're teaching you and that they're unrepentant in teaching it, assume it comes out of a heart that is equally gospel-denying or defying. And that's how we respond. Our words reveal our hearts. And if our hearts don't cling to what is true and believe, that, believe what's true, then our words will not reflect that either. So what's the responsibility for us all? Don't waste your time in arguing vain philosophies. Don't reduce the word of God to the level of human argument. It has no counterpart. It stands above. It may be foolish to the wise of this world, but ultimately, it is the wise words of God that are established for all time. Keep it elevated. Use it properly. Know it truly. Don't be ashamed of it. Handle it well. Speak it boldly. Be correctable and teachable by it. And understand the necessity of correcting false teaching. Because for whatever reason, it seems to spread faster than the truth. For whatever reason, it seems to have a, an impact of corruption even for those who are in the church who believe well. It says, for some of them, listen to the terminology here. For some of them, it's ruining them. It's upsetting them. Or as he said to Hymenaeus in 
of Hymenaeus in the first letter. It's leading to the shipwreck of faith of some. So that's why we deal with false teaching, not because we're contentious, not because we're arrogant, but because we want to prevent spiritual damage, spiritual shipwreck, spiritual death, spiritual apostasy. Know the truth, speak the truth, guard the truth, and that's the responsibility of us all. Let's pray. Father, we have read of your word today and its goodness towards us, its blessing for those who believe it, trust in it, submit themselves to the counsel of it, those who, who delight in it, who not spend their time lowering themselves to the level of scoffers and mockers, and, but who spend their time in your word and, and love it and can speak it accurately. Father, we've seen the challenge that we are to handle it well in a way that would not call us to be ashamed one day standing before you to say, no, no, that is not it. That's not what my word said. But Father, handle it well and know that you use it, Father. And in some circumstances, you're going to call people who are spiritually dead to spiritual life because of the word. In some situations, you're going to cause those who are sinning and destroying themselves to repent and be restored by the teaching of the word. You're going to cause some who are doubting and struggling in their faith to be renewed in confident assurance because of the word. Your word will accomplish the purpose which you sent it. We can trust that. Father, may we wield it. May we apply it. May we submit to it well. Father, may we be always on guard for false teaching and teachers, not simply for argument's sake not to remain in battle, but to protect your people, to protect those who are new believers, protect those who, who are confused in their faith, to protect the truth because the truth gives life. And that's what our Savior said. That we'll know the truth and the truth sets us free. And if the truth is freeing, then lies are, then lies are destructive. Many are bound by them and destroyed by them. Father, I pray that we would be speakers and livers of the truth. Father, thank you for it. Father, as we stand before you one day, may we be those who have pleased you well. May we be approved workers. May we have served you well with your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.